This podcast is sponsored by the Davenant Institute and Davenant Hall, reimagining theological education. Visit davenanthall.com. The Davenant Institute seeks to retrieve the riches of classical Protestantism to renew and build up the contemporary church. Key to this mission is their educational arm, Davenant Hall. In an age where much theological education both overlooks the riches of church history and keeps students in debt, Davenant Hall is reimagining theological education. Davenant Hall takes full advantage of digital technology to make high-quality theological education affordable via online courses. Students can simply audit a single class or enroll in a degree program, including subject-specific certificates, PhD supervision, and the flagship MLIT program, which includes pastoral tracks for Baptist, Anglican, and Reformed or Presbyterian ministry. Enroll in classes at any time during the academic year. Knowing that in-person fellowship is key to Christian formation, Davenant hosts regular residentials at their study center in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of South Carolina. Registration for spring term 2024 classes running April to June is now open. Register by March 27th. Fees start at just $225 for a 10-week class with a two-hour Zoom class from expert professors each week. Spring term classes include Male and Female in Modernity with Alistair Roberts, The Reformation and the Modern World with Michael Lynch, Philosophy as a Way of Life with Joseph Minnick and more. Visit DavenantHall.com to find out more. That's DavenantHall.com. The following is sponsored by the Logos Bible Study Platform. Visit Logos.com slash go to get started and hear more at the conclusion of today's podcast. This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. What happened on the day of Pentecost is not a kind of paradigm event that is to be set to model what's to happen either in individual Christian experience or in the life of the church. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm Jonathan Master, joined as always by my friend and co-host James Dolezal. James, how are you today? Doing well. Really looking forward to our conversation and to a a very special guest. He is a very special guest. He's had a a personal influence in both of our lives and in the lives of many, many people. We're we're glad to welcome today Dr. Richard Gaffin. Uh, Dick Gaffin is Emeritus Professor of Biblical and Systematic Theology at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. He taught there for over 40 years. He's an ordained minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and his writings have been incredibly influential in, in many people's lives and in their thinking, including in our own. So, Dr. Gaffin, thanks for coming on today to talk about this new book, In the Fullness of Time. Yeah, well, thank you for that very gracious introduction, and very pleased to be with you both. Well, we're glad you took the time. I want to begin by asking some questions about the book. The subtitle of the book is An Introduction to the Biblical Theology of Acts and Paul. And so I want to start with Acts and and ask this question. As you frame the theology of Acts, you, you devote a considerable amount of time and attention to Pentecost. And so I wonder if we could just start there. Why is Pentecost this essential um, event and this essential ingredient for understanding the whole framework of the book of Acts? Yeah, that's a very uh, central question. When you look at Acts 2, 
uh, it's very important to see that uh, Peter in his sermon, as you could characterize it, on the day of Pentecost, uh, connects what takes place on Pentecost very directly with the death, but particularly the resurrection, ascension, and then uh, a heavenly session of Christ. And uh, as a kind of single event complex is the way it could be put, uh, so that Pentecost has a a once-for-all significance along with the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. Once for all, in the sense uh, that Pentecost has to be seen essential to what Christ did to accomplish our salvation as a completed salvation once for all. So to to, to make the point, uh, uh, as I like to put it, the work of Christ that the Father sent him to do to accomplish the salvation of his people, that salvation, that accomplished salvation is not complete until on the day of Pentecost, he sends the Spirit to be with the church, uh, as he says, till the end of the age, connected with the Great Commission. So, um, Focusing on just the way you asked the question, Jonathan, you always want to see everything in Acts as a component of the two-part work of Luke to Theophilus, keying in on the the very beginning of the document. Acts is a continuation of what Luke has reported in the third gospel, and that then is, as he says, what What happens in Acts is essentially what Christ, now exalted, is continuing to do. So as one person has put it, Pentecost is the high point, uh, not simply of the book of Acts, and I would want to stress that if we were just going to focus on Acts, but it's really the high point, uh, together with the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, Uh, of the entire two-volume work, so that you could say uh, the climax of the narrative in the book of Acts, because Acts is basically a narration of what transpired at the time that Luke is, in the events that Luke is reporting, the climax is there already. Uh, The high point of the narrative is reached virtually uh, very close to the beginning. Well, I guess that's enough on that. Well, it's a teaser because I want to ask in a follow-up to that. So if we begin the book of Acts with a climax, really coming off of the accomplishment of Christ recorded in Luke, then how should we think about that ongoing early missionary activity of the apostles in the light of Pentecost? And in particular, and this is something you've written on before in your book, Perspectives on Pentecost, Should we think of these as each a new individual Pentecost, or is there something decisive? And you, I think you already said once for all in the event of Pentecost. So is Pentecost a normative recurring event, sort of like the Christian Sabbath, or is Pentecost something more like the death and resurrection of Christ, a decisive moment? And then if it's a decisive moment, because you've already mentioned that just briefly, then how should we think about the rest of the book of Acts? 
in light of that? Yeah, I think it's very important, and I tried to bring this out, especially um, uh, in in the treatment in the book. And remember, this is uh, uh, what's there in the book is really my trying to get into print matters that I had emphasized in teaching on the Book of Acts uh, in a course at Westminster. And uh, I felt it was so important to... uh, to make clear what things need to be appreciated first about the book of Acts with all the questions that can be raised about things that happen in the narrative there. And here, uh, I don't think it can be stressed too strongly that uh, Acts 1.8, the theme can be seen as the theme verse of the entire book of Acts. And that then... Acts 1.8, where Jesus says and says to the apostles, you will be my witnesses from Jerusalem, uh, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Uh, Important to recognize that the you there is an apostolic you, and that Acts documents a completed apostolic history. So that the events and acts uh, that follow, which can appear to be repetitions of Pentecost, are really a realization of that uniquely apostolic past that has been given. What happens in Samaria, chapter 8, what happens then with the Gentiles in chapter 10 and 11, uh, then as that is picked up in the latter part of the document uh, covering the ministry of Paul as bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. That is, I think it should be clear without too much difficulty uh, to see that that uh, that geographic description, Jerusalem, uh, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, that's really an ethnic geography and that the ends of the earth are the Gentile ends of the earth. So everything, all of the details of the Spirit's activity in the book of Acts are tethered to the apostles fulfilling this bringing of the gospel in a foundational apostolic sense as the work of the apostles to the ends of the earth. As it could be put, you get to Acts 28, Uh, It can appear to be uh, an odd way to end the document there. Paul is in jail. Uh, It's not uh, made clear uh, what's going to happen to him. Uh, And and, uh, we're just uh, told that for two years he was teaching about uh, the Lord, preaching about Jesus and uh, teaching about the kingdom of God. And that would uh, appear to be that Lucas kind of left things open-ended without taking on all the vibes. There is no Acts 29 that's needed. What Acts documents is a completed apostolic task. The gospel has reached from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Okay, Uh, James, uh, you know, to your question more specifically, So I think we have to look to elsewhere in the New Testament to look at what ought to be the 
our expectations uh, in the life of the church post-apostolic age to know what we ought to expect the work of the Holy Spirit to be in our lives, in the life more broadly of the church, until uh, Christ returns. And I think uh, the epistles address that very adequately. And of course, there would be points of contact with what is described in the book of Acts. But there is, and I think you can appreciate, there's a discontinuity between what happens in the book of Acts and what happens in the church during its apostolic period and what happens beyond. Again, uh, this is an issue I have so often uh, in dealing with these matters. This is not making us just spectators on the book on, on Pentecost or making the work of the Spirit something that happens only in the past. Uh, the present life of the believer is, as Paul uh, stresses in, in, for instance, Ephesians 5, a life filled with the Spirit. Uh, and uh, we would need then to go into uh, to how that is to be understood. But again, I don't think it can be stressed strongly enough that what happened on the day of Pentecost is not a kind of paradigm event that is to be set to model. That's what's to happen either in individual Christian experience uh, or in the life of the church constantly repeated Pentecosts. Uh, until the return of Christ. So as inaugural, it's not a it's not a weekly or monthly, yearly repetitious thing. It's something we're participating in something that was inaugurated, but there's phenomena, phenomena that uniquely attends to that inaugural event that is not itself part of the continuation. Is that a way to think of it? Yeah. Thank you very much for that. Well, <laughs> Clear encapsulation. Well, I'm just, or I could put it, I could put it this way, Doctor Gaffin. I shouldn't be looking for a tongue of fire to descend on Jonathan's head. No, I think uh, we would, we should not expect that. Okay, no insult, Jonathan. I'm just. No, no, no. I, I'd, I'd be, I'd be the most surprised of all of us if that were to happen. Uh, well, we should expect the spirit uh, to fill and empower uh, Jonathan you, me, and uh, all of God's people. And I wanted to switch gears and talk a little bit about how that works itself out in the ministry and the theology of the Apostle Paul. One of the emphases that you are known for in your writing is the um, Paul's understanding of the implications of the resurrection and um, in fact, the discussion of Paul's theology ends with a long section on his theology of resurrection. So I want to ask the question this way. Why is this so critical? If we're going to understand Paul, why do we have to understand Paul's doctrine of the resurrection? Yeah, I think, uh, and it can't be, I think, encapsulated more briefly uh, before saying anything else that for Paul, the Christian life is resurrection life. It's a life of, uh, and what's in the background here, uh, it's what is so central to Paul uh, as, as the rest of the New Testament, uh, and that is the union uh, that is forged between Christ as resurrected 
uh, more broadly, Christ is now exalted, no longer in his state of humiliation as he was during his earthly ministry, but now uh, at what the New Testament calls the right hand of God, there in exaltation, that's the Christ, the resurrected Christ, that believers are united with by the working of his Holy Spirit through faith, and so that everything that transpires in the life of the believer in terms of appropriating the salvation, experiencing the salvation that Christ has uh, secured and achieved, is a matter of reflecting in one way or other on the, um, the resurrected life that Christ shares uh, with his people. And that really brings us back again to the Holy Spirit. Because again, um, very briefly stated, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit uh, in the life of the believer is the resurrection life of Christ. Christ and the Spirit are simply inseparable in the life of the believer. So no modern tongues of fire, but nonetheless, the resurrection life of the Lord Jesus Christ as we're united to him through his, his Holy Spirit, through the work of his Holy Spirit. Yes, Maybe connected to that, and this might be the same question that Jonathan asked, kind of with a different inflection, is maybe with regard to Paul's eschatological outlook. And though you've been talking about this for decades, now it's more commonplace people talk about Paul's two-age uh, theology, this age and the age to come. And I'm even thinking back to um, Herman Ritterboss's great book on Paul, an outline of his theology, which I love. And I think there's even an acknowledge, there's something about you in the acknowledgments, but that's that's those are many years ago uh, in Ritterboss's great book. But he foregrounds Paul's eschatology. And I wonder if you could say something just to the effect of how does Paul's doctrine of the resurrection, so central to his thought, come to bear in his eschatological outlook? What is he, what what is his eschatological outlook um, that is so important in his theology? Yeah, in terms of eschatological structure, uh, I think it's uh, this is just fundamental to understanding Paul and and the rest of the New Testament. And this, I think, is is so often what many many believers even today need to appreciate that eschatology isn't simply a matter of what will happen in the future at Christ's return. It certainly does involve that. But uh, as it could be uh, put, the eschatology of the New Testament is elliptical. That is, it is defined uh, by two points, uh, one in the past and one in the future. And the past eschatological locus or point it's what has transpired in the death and resurrection of Christ and Pentecost climactically. And that is what, um, that is what Paul uh, is, is, has become so grasped by. Uh, and of course, you know, so much of Paul can be looked at uh, in his teaching, his writing, as kind of an explanation of the Old Testament. You want to know how to understand the Old Testament? 
then read the Apostle Paul, along with other New Testament writers. But Paul sees himself uh, as living at a point where God's eschatological promises to his covenant people in the Old Testament have begun to find their fulfillment uh, in what has already transpired in the work of, in, but as a result of the work of Christ, in Christ's work and its consequences, and will reach its, reach its culmination uh, at his return. So uh, proverbial, uh, I think a lot of people are familiar with this, uh, there's an already not yet structure to the eschatology. And that is, I think, what someone like Ritterboss uh, is bringing out in the Paul, in the Paul book, that, uh, that as, as he says, Ritterboss says, Paul's eschatology is Christ's hyphen eschatology, Christus mm. eschatology uh, in the Dutch. But that is the point, particularly to what has happened uh, in the history of redemption, what has already taken place. Uh, in Christ's work, James, I share with you the uh, the enthusiasm and the, and the influence that uh, Ritterboss has had uh, in helping my own understanding of Paul. Uh, but uh, I think, in a way, even more a greater uh, influence and a precursor is is uh, Gerhardus Foss, late nineteenth and early twentieth century at Princeton Seminary, and his seminal work on Paul's eschatology, as he titles the book. But he says there at the beginning, if you look at, if you, toward the beginning of the book, if you is, look and ask, what is Paul's soteriology? How we're saved? What salvation of the believer consists in? Uh, if you look at his Christology, what does he teach about the work of uh, Christ and the person of Christ come, as Paul said, in the fullness of time. And then his eschatology, as, as Voss puts it, uh, those so interpenetrate that you can pick up on any one of those three and you're, you find yourself involved in uh, the other two. So you, you've picked up that thread from Voss. I, I, I know just from conversations, other books, and from this book. And it's uh, that, that, in my own theological progression, that was a, a thrilling discovery that I made at Westminster through the teaching there and through your influence, undoubtedly. And uh, I'm really glad that that is now being shared with others in this new book, uh, In the Fullness of Time. Dr. Gaffin, we're, we're really grateful uh, for the time you took for, with us today. Okay, thank well, thank you for giving me this. And congratulations on what I think is your biggest book to date. Uh, th that is to say, <laughs> usually I tell people a, do a Dr. Gaffin book is um, trim and relentless. Um, and uh, this isn't less relentless, but it gives us more of the pages we were hoping for. So we're, we're thrilled that it's out and available for readers. Thank you. Blessings on you both. Well, James, um, Dr. Gaffin is someone who's had a, an influence on both of us personally in different ways, both in church settings and also for you in the classroom. I never had him as a teacher, but certainly have benefited from his books as well. And I think 
Well, I don't know. I, 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 I'm tempted to say this is the book I would now recommend if you could only read one, but I, I don't know. His other books are so valuable, but, but let's not get caught up in that. Let's just say we would recommend this book. It is vintage Gaffin in terms of the themes that he hits, but he's able to deal with them with a degree of exegetical detail that some of the other books just hint at, and this book really gets into. I think Dr. Gaffin knows how to order and prioritize the details. And so this is a book, he says at a few places in the introduction, that this is not a comprehensive theology of Acts, theology of Paul. He is really locking in on some central themes that are uh, that are sort of the groundwork, the framework for many of the details that we find uh, in Paul's epistles and in the book of Acts. Um, his course, Acts and Paul at Westminster Seminary, is legendary. I don't think exaggerates the significance of that course as a, as a core course for so many years and so many thousands of students who have taken that course. And to see to see that course, that legendary course, now available in, in a nice uh, literary form. And you said it's vintage Gaffin. And I, I wonder, probably some of our listeners don't know what that means. And all I can say is um, tole lege, and uh, you'll find <laughs> out. Um, but warmly yes. encourage people to read this book. And especially, if I can add, especially those that are ministers of the new covenant, Yes. If you are a minister of the new covenant, which is to say a, a preacher of the gospel, then I think this is this is a book that will I say this from experience because I know this material. Now I have it in book form. This will shape the sound of your Sunday school class and of your pulpit ministry. And it will it will enrich uh, you and your people Um it's uh, it's it's wonderful to have this in book form and highly encourage listeners to go find a copy of this. Well, we would encourage that of you. And also, if if you'd like the opportunity to win a copy of it, our friends at Crossway have given us a few. And so you can go to placefortruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link. You can enter your information there. The book is entitled In the Fullness of Time. The subtitle is An Introduction to the Biblical Theology of Acts and Paul. Now, to you, our listeners, we're grateful for you. If you have someone that would benefit from this, please pass it along to them. Rate and review the podcast. That helps us get the word out, actually. And if you're able to donate, you can do that at alliancenet.org or placefortruth.org. Org. And on behalf of James, I just like to say thank you for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. According to a recent survey, 30% of evangelical churchgoers want more in-depth teaching. If you want to go deeper into the Word, Logos is the Bible study platform for you. Logos fuses powerful technology with biblical resources. Access Bibles, search tools, commentaries, seminary-level courses, even audiobooks right on your phone, tablet, or desktop. Logos offers nearly 200,000 digital books from the world's top publishers. Logos editions have been turbocharged with power data that connect them with the rest of your library. So whether you're comparing Bible translations, tackling tough topics, or studying deep theological issues, Logos has you covered. Dig into the original language resources without even knowing Greek or Hebrew, and Logos will even help you pronounce the words. 
Pastors and scholars like John Piper, Matt Chandler, and Eric Mason use Logos in their study and sermon prep. Get started with Logos today for just $49. Go to logos.com slash go. That's logos.com slash go. 